We are um, Christians gathered in a Christian church. Why are we studying other religions? I know that uh, some, some people in the room are asking that very question. And I'm going to come back in a moment and answer that question. And for those of you who are walking in cold, who know nothing about what I'm speaking, today we're starting a six-week sermon series that is entitled Christianity and World Religions. And over these next six weeks, we're looking at all the biggest religions of the world and what we're looking at. And where I want to go with this today is I want to, I want to cover three things this morning. I want to look at the question about why study other religions in this kind of context. I'd like to um, ask the question or consider how does God, how do we think from our perspective, God views people of other faith? And then finally, I want to speak about what's called a theology of religions. Those are the three things I want to do. I want to tell you that um, I did this sermon series, one like it, about 13 years ago. And I can tell you two things from that experience. One, these are very hard sermons. And two, they're, they're difficult to, to make short. The longest sermon I've ever done in 16 years was in that sermon series. So, so but don't be worried. I'm a little more experienced since then. I'm going to cut them down a little bit. But we are going to streamline a few things in the service. So you notice we went straight to the gospel after the reading. We're going to do a couple things to keep things moving because we want to try to get you out um, pretty much at the same time. But I'm going to ask for a little bit of grace on that. As we turn and look at these things, though, I want to begin by asking the, the first question. Why would a group of Christians in church want to give any thought to other world religions? And I want to suggest there are a number of good reasons. There's probably more than what I'm going to say. But the first of which is to think about our neighbors today. And to quote one of my favorite theologians, Bono of you too. <laughs> he says, look, today in the world, everybody is your neighbor. Because we're so connected that you know what's happening right now in other parts of the world. You know all this. So, so part of that, I think, if we're going to lean into Jesus' uh, command to us to love our neighbors ourselves, like he says uh, in Mark 12, part of that is going to be understanding, knowing something about what other people believe and where they are that way. And along with that, I think there are lots of conflicts in the world that are based on religion. And sometimes you'll, I've got to add one footnote that I just cannot help but add. That is, sometimes people think, yeah, and you'll hear some of your atheist friends say religion's all about the conflict. I'll just remind you before I go further on this, most people who've died in the world have died at the hands of dictators who were atheists. So we have religious wars, but that religious wars and, and religious conflict is a part of the world. It is. And I want you to be able to understand some of that conflict. So when we talk a little bit later about Islam, we'll talk about the Shiites and the Sunnis and the Iran and, and Iraq and the conflict they had around that. And you'll know something about what's going on with that, right? Part of, again, I think it's an extension of being a neighbor that way. I think another reason that it's good to look at other world religions is you will learn more about your own faith. As you compare and contrast and ask the questions you will learn more about Christianity and your own faith as we explore this thing. And the final thing, again, there are probably many other reasons to do this, but one of the other reasons, I think ultimately this will push us to have a theology of religions, which in our modern world is something that we need, and I'll explain more about what that is in today's sermon at the very end. So those are the reasons why, that's the first part of what I want to cover today. I just a little, a few thoughts about why are we doing this. And the second thing I want to turn to is to ask this question. How do we think God views people of other faiths? 
And to answer that question, I want to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and look at a few things about how we see God responding or interacting or doing different things with respect to people of other faiths. And part of this, go back um, to the Old Testament for a minute. Um, in the Old Testament, you will see the phrase, the nations, repeated a lot. It's something like 500 times in the Old Testament, you'll see that phrase repeated. And what that phrase means, it, it meant the Canaanites, but it also meant all the other peoples of different backgrounds throughout the world. And you see it mentioned in many different ways in many different places. As I said like 500 times in the Old Testament. But I want to go back to the very beginning. So apart from Genesis and creation and all this other stuff, when you finally get around to Genesis 28, where God gives Abraham the call that really starts God's covenant people, he tells Abraham that through you, I want to bless the nations of the world. And so the beginning place I think we want to start with is at the very beginning of bringing this people together, God is not just saying, I'm bringing you together so I can bless you. He's saying, I want to bless the nations. I want to bless all the world. That's part of, part of what we get in that. That's part of who God is. And we can look at lots of different examples of where that plays out in these 500 accounts we see in different places. One may think about, for example, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, where he talks about being a, uh, a light to the nations. This idea that they're going to be something, again, that blesses all the nations of the world. Or to tell one story, um, just go back a minute to, and just think about the story of Jonah for a minute. Many of us love that story, but, but go back and think about it through these lenses today. And think about what it, what it says about how God views people of other backgrounds, right? Because this story to go back to it for a minute, Jonah is told by God, I want you go, to go to the, to the people of Nineveh, not Jewish, the people of Nineveh, and I, they're doing all this bad stuff, and I want you to preach to them to repent. God is asking him to go and repent, and Jonah doesn't want any part of this, right? He, he's like, can, can we just let them die? Let them, let them have whatever they want. And in fact, he gets on a ship not headed to Nineveh, but going the opposite direction, and then this supernatural storm develops and uh, all of this is going on. And to Jonah's credit, he owns it, right? And he tells them, okay, I'm bringing this on us because I'm running, for, I'm running from this. And instead of saying right then, okay, can you redirect the ship towards Nineveh? I think we'll make this storm go away. He doesn't say that. He just says, look, be done with me. Throw me over. And scripture tells us whether we think it's literal or a prophetic parable or not, doesn't matter. Let's just recount what it says. He is swallowed by this large fish where he's in the belly of the fish for three days. And the whole time he keeps saying, no, no, don't want this, no. And then finally after three days, it's like, okay. And he gets burped up on the beach. And he heads to Nineveh and he preaches redemption and the people turn. And, and they repent. And then he goes outside the city and just mopes, right? And sits down. And God eventually blesses him with this quick growing bush that comes up over him and gives him shade. And that, but the problem is the next day it dies and it goes away. And he's super frustrated. And he's like yelling at God, first you made me do this and they repented. And now you've taken away this bush. And God is like, there's 120,000 people there. Like, do you not want me to have pity on them? 
And they have this conversation. But the, we walk away from that whole story. There's nothing in the account that ever says the, Ninevehs, the Ninevites became Jews or anything else. But God cared for them, wanted them to repent, wanted them to turn from these ways that they were in. And it shows something about what God's heart is like on this, right? There are other stories that we could tell. But then we start to move to the New Testament. And that brings us really quickly to the feast that we celebrate today. I know some of y'all are like, the, the, really the, the theological nerds in the room are like, well, isn't this the 12th day of Christmas? Okay, it is. Tomorrow's Epiphany, and we're cheating. Let's just, we're moving it up, we're celebrating it today. That's why we're in white and everything else. So, but Epiphany is this great feast where we think about the shining forth of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And it involves these folks traveling this long distance who are, again, are not Jewish. And God's inviting them to come to Bethlehem and see. And, you know, Matthew gives his genealogy. He gives this, like, super short account of the birth. And then he talks about the Magi. And we get this story. And they come from the east. And we don't know exactly where they came from for sure. A lot of scholars think they came from modern-day Iran. And they make this, like, 1,200-mile journey through the Fertile Crescent all the way back to Bethlehem. Two to three months of travel time to get there. Because they've been given this message to come and see. And they take on that. And it's interesting to pause and just think about who are these three. We say three. We don't know the number. But let's say three magi who come. And uh, most scholars that I've read think that they were um, priests. Um, Astrozorian priests. And if you want to know what they believed. If you go look it up in the uh, dictionary what that term means. It'll say a monotheistic religion from the 6th century B.C. And so really when you look at it, they were a people who believed that there was one God. They believed that there was an opposite evil force opposed to it. And then they sort of had an ethical code that everybody lived by. So you can see there's strong parallels with that and with Judaism, but it was, they were not Jews. But they see this star, and we don't know what it was. Was it a comet? Was it whatever it was in the sky that leads them. And they travel these two to three months and they go to Bethlehem and they ultimately come to that scene um, with their gifts, right? The gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And um, in reading, uh, doing some research for this sermon today, I'd never really thought about this, but one of the scholars struck me because he said, look, it was good that they brought these things because this, this scholar's view was, this is the valuable things they received that helped them fund their trip to Egypt because they're about to run to Egypt because Herod's about to come and kill all the babies there. And so maybe it was the gold and maybe it was the stuff, they, the possessions they got. So God sends them to come and see, but also to help the Holy Family in their escape, right? By giving them these, these, these gifts of what happens. So again, we stop and ask, why in the world did Matthew include this story? I wonder, ultimately Matthew's going to be the one who's going to tell us at the end of his gospel that the gospel is meant to go out to all the world, go out and make disciples of all the world. And I wonder if he doesn't recount, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recount this story to put this right up front. That God in this early days is, are honoring a people who are not part of Judaism, not part of this traditional call and covenant, but they're people who were seeking God. There are people who are seeking, in a sense, to be open to the Holy Spirit. And God sees it, 
invites them, embraces them, and, and calls them this way. And maybe that's what we see throughout all of Scripture. God is love, and he wants to bless the world. God so loved the world, the whole world, that it's not just us, that he's, that he's inviting, encouraging, and bringing all this. So we see something on this second thing that I wanted to cover is kind of what do we see as we look at passages of Scripture about how God interacts with other people, other faiths. And I think the invi- he wants to bless them. He wants, in a sense, to invite them. And we certainly see that he loves them this way, right? So those are the things we put out there. And then I want to turn to the final thing that I want to cover today. And to talk, that is to talk about a theology of religions. And people are like, huh? Like exactly what is that? Some of you know, but many of us don't. And part of this sermon series is going to be review for many of you. But for some of you, it's going to be brand new. Some of you have already taken a world religions class and you know all this stuff. I'm going to take you back through it as review, but for some of you, it's going to be new. And it's part of, again, loving our neighbor. But the question that comes out eventually is this one. How do Christians view these people of other faiths, particularly with respect to salvation? Do we think that everybody who's not part of the Christian community is damned and in the fires of hell and all this other kind of stuff? Or what do we believe along that? That's what ultimately a theolo- the theology of religions is about. And if you go study it, there are three classical views that theologians have developed. And I want to present these to you. Kind of, I want to present the two extremes and then talk about the one that's in the middle. The first extreme that we get, um, there, again, I'm sort of simplifying it in the interest of time. But it is extreme. It's called universalism. And it's the idea that all paths lead to the same place. And everybody's in. And it's, uh, I'll say more about it in a minute, but it's, it's something that I think comes, people who go there ultimately do it because they get a hold of what I've just talked about. They get a hold of the fact that God loves everyone. And they, deep down in their hearts, want everybody to be there. And so they, they want to quickly say, All, everybody's in. And it's controversial at times, right? I think about Rob Bell, for those of you who know who Rob Bell. Rob Bell was this evangelical pastor out of Michigan. He was on the front cover of Time magazine. And the article about him said, this is the next Billy Graham. And then along the way, he wrote a very thoughtful book called Love Wins, in which it seemed to be that he said, there's no hell, which was a version of saying universalism. Everybody's in. There's no hell. He got thrown out right away by the evangelical church in a very sad episode. He's now a happy Episcopalian. (laughs) No, I don't don't know that he is, but but he should be. He should be. (laughs) But the question we have to ask is, you know, all the religions of the world ultimately are seeking to ask the same questions. But they have very different answers to the questions. And as one of the pastors I love says... Are you really honoring people of other faith traditions if you say we're all the same? If you go to a Muslim friend and say, yeah, we're all the same, they're going to be like, what? Is that really honoring them? There are huge differences. And part of what we want to do in all of this is to recognize the places where we are saying the same thing, but also be okay with saying, yeah, we we don't see it that way. But see them as neighbor and see them as somebody we're called to love, right? So that there are differences that way. That's the first position in its extreme universalism. The second uh, 
classical view of theology of religions is the polar opposite. And it's this notion that's called exclusivism, as the name sounds. And what it says in the Christian version of it is it says, if you're not calling out on Jesus' name explicitly and calling on him for salvation, you're out. And, um, and this gets harsh, right? You, if you get somebody who's all the way there, they're like, what about a child who dies before they have cognitive abilities? Mm. What about people on an island somewhere who've never heard the gospel whatsoever? Mm. And they're, they're, if you go hardcore on this, they're saying, look, you need the cosmic medicine of Christ to heal the wound of sin. And if you don't get that, mm, sorry. So it's, it can be very, very harsh. Now, it's easy for us getting a hold of some of God's love to say, yeah, that doesn't sound right. You know, because we think about this idea that our salvation is ultimately all about grace. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. It's a gift from God that we receive. That's what it is. And this makes it sound like um, that it's more of that. And, and God in his appropriating the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can do it how he wants, right? And this is, we're going to come back to this in a minute. But, but I will say this before we leave it. I don't want to dismiss it as if these people are not unthoughtful or unloving or what have you. Because they're looking at some really very direct passages of scripture on this, right? I want to read just a few of these because I want you to see how hard this issue can be, right? John 14, Jesus said, I'm the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Acts 4.12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Or 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God. There's also one mediator between God and humankind. Christ Jesus himself human. This idea that you get some very strong passages of scripture. That's the second view, and that's where it comes from. I want to go to the third view, and the third view is informed by these passages of Scripture, but they're much softer. It's, it's got a softer place. It's in the middle. And it's a, a notion that's called Christian inclusivism. And what this uh, notion, uh, this view of the uh, theology of religion says is this. If there is salvation anywhere, it's through Jesus Christ. So it's not saying who's in or out or where they are, or what the boundaries are. But it's ultimately saying if, you're, if there is salvation it's because in some other place, it's because of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways, there have been lots of ways this has been expressed. I'm going to give you two more ways that this has kind of been said. One of these from last century came from a Jesuit priest, Carl Rahner, who used to talk about the anonymous Christ. And what he would say is that if there is salvation in any of these other religions... It's only because Jesus is already there, anonymously. He's the anonymous Christ in these places. And there are anonymous Christians is kind of the, the way he would go with this. And a little footnote on this, which always makes me laugh and kind of tickles me, is um, the story is told that he went to a conference where he was teaching and giving a paper on this and presenting on this. And it was an ecumenical conference. And uh, this Buddhist leader came up to him during the conference and said, hey, I I'm happy with you talking about the anonymous Christ within Buddhism. I hope you don't mind if I talk about the anonymous Buddha within Christianity. 
it just always makes me laugh when I hear that story. But there are lots of different ways that we might um, think about that. Now, if you want to see what a, a committee writing, a committee of theologians very thoughtfully, prayerfully, and precisely trying to articulate what this is, um, I will read to you what the Roman Catholic Church says on this. They have, this is their formal view. This is also the view of most mainline churches. But the way the Roman Catholic Catechism states this is they say this. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience. Those two may achieve, may achieve eternal salvation. That's how they say it. But I think this idea that, again, to go back to this, we're saved by grace. And the merits of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection can be applied any way he wants. And there are all kinds of circumstances. You know, you think about a child who's raised in a country of another faith, maybe in the household of one of their religious leaders, and thinking about what opportunity they have to hear the revelation of Christ. Or think about all these different circumstances. You know, somebody abused as a child who's not open to God's love in any manner. Where are they? You know, all these different things. God, God is never going to be more fair than we can think about. And he loves you more than you'll ever know. And I think it would be way too limiting to say that's out of bounds for him. I want to end today with, a, with a part of a book. One of my favorite books I've ever read, and I read it two or three times to my boys, are the Chronicles of Narnia. I just love, love those books. And, if they, and when they're seniors, I'm going to ask them if they'll let me read it a fourth time. <laughs> but in the very final book, if you remember the final book um, entitled The Last Battle, there are a bunch of interesting characters. One of the, the um, gods presented in that final chapter is a fake god, a violent god, is Tash. And there is, in that uh, story, you're, you, if those of you have read it, there's a, this character, Emeth, who serves Tash loyally throughout his life. Um, but he seems to be of a different mold. And he has a very, a very pure heart. In this final scene, there's basically a judgment of sorts. And if you remember how this works, Aslan the lion, if you've seen the movies or read the book, he's, is Jesus. And when they eventually in the final chapter, they talk about how Aslan has called them further in and higher up. And clearly he's talking about heaven in this, right? And when they get to this place, the people see that Emmeth um, is there. And they're like, how is it that you're here? Because you serve Tash. And he tells the story that as he went to the door, Aslan, the lion, is there. And he says, this is the dialogue that they had. And he repeats it. Emmet says, Lord, is it then true that you and Tash are one? And the lion growled so that the earth shook and said, it's false. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me. And none which is not vile can be done to him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then it is Tash whom he serves. And by Tash, his deed is accepted. Do you understand, child? I said, Lord, you know how much I understand. But I said also, yet have I been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, Aslan. Unless you des your desire had been for me, 
you would not have sought so long and so truly. For all find what they truly seek. Let's pray.